I'm Sonia Morton Firth, and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Today, my guest is Chris Michaels, veteran, author of six books, and host of the Dark Side podcast. After being diagnosed with PTSD, Chris was put on antidepressants for many years. He reached a turning point after being homeless and coming out of an abusive relationship. Now, Chris pioneers to help others with their mental health issues. Chris, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. Um, and I know normally it's the other way around. <laughs> You're normally the other side and doing the interviewing. How does it feel to be on this side of the camera? <laughs> to be honest, it's more relaxing. It's actually more relaxing and it's more, it's, I can speak more because when, well, you know yourself, when you do podcasts, you do interviews, your brain's running at 100 miles an hour. What's the next question? How can I divide, you know, how can I direct this? How can I, what's the next? How can I interloop it to something else, to another question? I'll get one question and you're kind of having to keep directing. Your brain's running at 100 miles an hour because you're con conscious of time, but you're also conscious of content, essentially. So it's very relaxed and people asking me the questions. I can, I can quite easily sit all day. sit back, relax, have a cup exactly. of tea. Now exactly. listen, I've got to tell um, our audience where you're from because you're a fellow northerner um, and that's the first thing I picked up when we spoke a few weeks ago. Um, what, how are things up north? Uh, well, at the moment it's in a balance. So essentially they're talking about potentially looking at lockdown, further lockdowns, maybe moving into a, like a higher tier. Um, but to be honest, I don't agree with it. I don't agree in that sense because I grew up, I think it's amazing what Liverpool have done and they managed to fight and keep the gyms open because I think that's an essential service. I, I, honestly, if, if they close gyms, and I know we're getting straight into this, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to time myself to the machines. <laughs> because it, it's, it's the one thing, I mean, you know, it's not the one thing, there are lots of things, but it, it's keeping us fit, healthy, and our mental health, our sanity. Um, and I, ju I, I personally don't, and, and other people that I've spoken to, I don't understand the logic behind shutting the gyms um, over and above other establishments. Well, I, I've never understood it because my argument have always gone it, it, it towards, essentially, how can you have pubs, restaurants, fast food that are potentially unhealthy for you? Yeah. Okay. There's that risk and then obviously that burden on NHS, but then you've got a gym, you know, you can keep all the pubs and the, the food part because we know it's money orientated on that aspect. Yeah. And then on the other side, you've got gyms that are not only good for your physical health, your mental health, but it's also social aspects yeah. because essentially what you've got to remember, people have been isolated for the last six months. Now those have been a massive, we've seen a rate of suicide, you know, rocket. And, and Chris, I mean, you're a massive advocate and pioneer in the mental health space. And, and obviously, I want to talk about your background. Yeah, um, yeah. Before we get to that, you, you just mentioned that. And I think this is really important at this moment. The suicide rates, uh, you know, taking, up, oh, taking away the physical side of COVID and all that yeah. stuff. Like, what, what it's doing to people's mental health. I mean, what are you seeing Certainly, we're hearing suicide rates are going up. Um, are you hearing from from people that you know and that are on your your say social media and your network um, that they're suffering more? I'd say there's been an increase of it because you see people, you see 
naturally when you're attuned to that because before I went through everything I was quite I wouldn't say I was naive in it but I didn't really pick up on it as much but I'm quite I've got a lot of empathy for people but you go when you go through trauma that kind of magnifies so you understand it better from from that perspective but the problem I, I see is a shift in people or I see a lot of people have say shut down their social media accounts or they're like they're there one moment and you think you see people's changing behavior that's the first thing you see is that's how you notice it it's people's behavior they usually go quiet or you'll see what the content that they're posting and you and you kind of work out that balance of people the mental state now you can always see i mean pre-lockdown you can sit, usually tell the, the, the way people talk the way they express themselves and then a lot of people do it through social media whether that be a quote or a meme or you know whatever they want to put out there and you kind of pick up on people's behaviors because as as humans i think we're quite intuitive about behavior and then the more empathy you have in you the more you'll understand that perspective so as i've seen i've seen a big rise in it the way people put themselves out there i've seen how they change how their their language changes and I think on one aspect, that's the time when you've got to kind of jump in the DM and say, are you okay? Is everything okay? It's those kinds when you see it as a person and you see a shift in someone's behavior, then that's why I've constantly kept on, you know, putting the podcasts out there. I've constantly put out the, uh, you know, every day, I'll try and put content out there every morning. And I get a lot of people will come back and say, thank you. Or that's just what I need to read. Because I think, you know, when you wake up in the morning, the first thing, I know first, pe first thing people do is look at the social media. They do, don't they? So, you know. And, and it's, it's, it's a terrible, it's a habit. And, you know, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I know, I know all these tools that you do in the morning. And I, I'm just like, I don't want to look at my phone, but I, I, yeah. I do. And, and it's like, that's a thing that I tell other people, don't do that first thing in the morning. And yet I catch myself doing it. Um, and it's and it's so difficult to just switch off and think no you don't actually need to look at that it's just a habit that's formed yeah absolutely because what i've come to do and i know this is a something I've, I've heard other people do it's before you go into any of your platforms like i'll meditate and i know there was another guy too lamb from run tactics out in the states and he said the same thing the first thing he wants to do is wake up and he wants to be connected but to himself and to the outside you know environment so you have that mindfulness you have meditation and that's something i've always I put out there as well do meditation it doesn't make a difference who you are it's a great tool i think it's an absolutely amazing tool but it took me a while um uh, to, not to get into it um but i think to, to feel like i could do it because i think an easy excuse, and I hear people say it all the time, is, oh, I don't have time to meditate. And it's like, well, that's exactly why you need to meditate. <laughs> exactly. How do you find, I mean, when do you do it, Chris? And, and what, what, do you, what do you find the best way to do it? Because all of this, I mean, you know, I hear people that say you've got to sit cross-legged in a certain position. Yeah. I think that's bollocks, to be honest. Yeah. Meditation can be different things to different people. I, I personally love being outside in nature yeah. and I get a lot from the outside and, and that's just sitting or, or even walking is, is meditation for me. But Chris, tell me, what, what is it? What do you find the best thing 
to do? Well, personally, I think it's everyone's personal choice. For myself, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll just sit for those 10 minutes because you got to remember that's 10 minutes. Now that's 10 minutes out of 24 hours. Now that's not much time really to switch off because obviously my brain runs so fast anyway. I, I find that what I do is I disconnect from everything, but I'm reconnected. So I'm kind of in that, there's a, there's a state of mind I like to get into is something called Mushin. Now Mushin is like no mind. So you've got like, you've got three states of mind essentially by the Japanese. You've got like the beginner mind, you've got Mushin and you've got the, uh, like a later on mind where you are active. But what it is, Mushin is basically no mind. So you kind of like, you've, you've switched everything off. You've cleared your mind of everything. And it's to get that concentration on breathing. Do you find, do you actually get out of bed to meditate? Do you do it first thing in the morning? I'll do it first thing in the morning. I'll sit on the bed. I think myself, I've tried lots of different ways and I think you've just got to find something that's comfortable for you. Yeah. So for myself, I'd rather, even just sitting on a bed and it's just that disconnection because they kind of say on the apps, like you could feet, put your feet on the floor or find a place where you, you're comfortable. But I find by putting your foot on the floor, you're grounding yourself straight away. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you touched earlier on on the fact that you've been through your own trauma, which helps you empathize with people that are going through their own mental health issues. Can yeah. you take me back to your trauma um, and what you went through? And I know this, this, this is a start of a long story, but um, it'd be great if you could just give us a little bit of background. Um, and I know- Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Because really what it was, I mean, you're talking 20 years. You're talking a good 20, been now 21 years. So really, I joined the military in 99, um, helicopter engineer. I mean, like obviously my first choice, because obviously you get your choices. So I was like, what do I weigh? Do, do I go Army? Do I go Royal Navy, Air Force? And I always thought, well, I w I'd love to travel the world. That was the first thing I wanted to do. And what made you sign up? Did you have um, a, a sort of a calling for it? Did you have any family in the military? Well, obviously I had family in the military, but what it was, was it was, I wanted to do something that I wanted to excel in something. But I also, I always thought, right, work it out. Do I want to travel? Do I want a career out of it? Do I want, and, and I just kind of broke it down into that part of it. So what do I want to do? Do I want to do something that I can come out and I can use that, that skill? essentially and then obviously it's going to, i'm going to get a lot of benefits from it anyway but also the other part obviously i wanted to travel and mm. i kind of thought well the navy is a great way of traveling the world you're getting it free great bonus you'll come out with a skill great i'll go down that route now i wasn't quite sure originally i wanted to go diver that was actually the first thing i wanted to do but at the time i was under the impression that you could only go side route because it was kind of like a side branch same as pti at the time the year that I joined, they changed it to direct entry, which essentially means you could just join up as a clearance diver. I was a bit gutted because I went for air engineering mechanic for helicopters and I thought it's something completely different. And I thought, well, I'll try that route. It, you know, I'm going to get a lot out of it. I didn't realize till a good 18 months later that I was going to get anything out of it. So I obviously I went through, done all the courses, done everything. And I knew there was a higher calling for us anyway, because it got to a point about 18 months in and I was like, right, Speaking to a chief one day, I was in the hangar and I was saying to him, I asked, what are you up to? Because he's just come to the last 22 years. And he said to me, he says, oh, I've got to do this qualification. I says, well, you've done 22 years. You have, you're you've got all your qualifications. He says, no, he says, you have to pay a thousand pounds. This was at the time, this is in 
I'd say 2000, 2001. So he stayed basically, he had to go and get pay a thousand pound, go on a qualification course for the civilian aircraft license, uh, which essentially means he can go and work on civilian aircraft because you can't use any of your skills or anything outside the military. It's basically, it was, it was a dead end. What you're saying is they weren't transferable. No, no transferable skills. Transferable. Yeah. So, so that's when you found that out. I knew there was a change. I knew that's when I wanted to change. I knew that's when, because I'd always been in two minds. I'm a very honest person. I'll take something as it comes. And then I'm always constantly analyzing situations. So I'm very analytical in that way. And I found out that out later on, why? But like, basically it was a case of, I knew I had to make a change because I thought, do I want to go on this route? And I was like, yes, no, yes, no. But then I made a decision, right, I'm going to either go for clearance diver, go for the actual divers branch, or I'll go Royal Marine Commandos. But the thing is, when you're in the Navy, most people think you can transfer across. You can't. You have to physically leave the Royal Navy and then join the Royal Marines. Because my end goal almost was I wanted to go into Royal Marines and then go for Special Forces selection. That was the, the path that I'd looked at. Because I kind of got to a point where I said I'd rather jump out of the helicopter than fix them. <laughs> you know, that was that, that, that attitude. I, I'm very... I'm very, very, I was basically like an adrenaline junkie. Do you, uh, you know, um, do, and, and look, I, I've, I've never, I haven't served, um, at, yeah. um, but I have spoken to a lot of veterans. And I do think, um, I, in fact, I've, I've just interviewed um, a, a guy that was in the SAS. Um, and Alan was a Royal Marine commando. And he's, he's doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things, big adventure. And, and there seems to be, and, and you know, I've interviewed as well, Dat Darren, Hardy, yeah. and, um, and there seems to be a little, and, and I wanted to know your opinion on this, between adrenaline and being in the military. And is there a link? Do you think there is a link when, when people come out and they don't, they don't experience that anymore because they're not serving, they're not fighting, they're not, they're not there, they're, they can't let go of this adrenaline and and then they maybe go for it in different forms yeah there's a definite link i would say the amount of veterans i've spoken to because to me you're essentially a, you're a drug addict you think of it in that terms obviously adrenaline is the natural drug within our yeah. body yeah and then you, there's no greater rush than being in a firefighter a firefighter in that basically when you're in a scenario where it's life and death, that is probably the most ultimate adrenaline rush you can physically be in and get and experience. You can jump out of planes all day. You can scuba dive. You can, you know, dive deeper. You can drive fast cars, ride motorbikes. You can do all that. But really, when it comes to a firefight, that is a life and death situation. And I know the amount of people I spoke to that when they left, it was like they're constantly looking for that rush that next rush because especially if you think about it we've been at war for all those years afghan iraq and it was very kinetic tours there was a lot of firefights there was a lot of danger there and it was like they thrived off that once they got that taste of that action because that's essentially what you're trained to do and and i think what it was as well when you get that taste of adrenaline you think about it, it's like a heroin junkie basically once you start on that path you constantly want that next rush. You want to, it's like chasing the dragon, essentially. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you, you want that next rush, don't you? You want, you, you know, to feel that point where you're, you're, you're alive. You're at the most, your senses are the most alive. Everything's about you the most alive. 
you know you, you've got to think this is like and people have basically said it they, they just loved it it became addictive and people have said that war is addictive so you you changed basically you had to come out to go back in that's why well i I'd got that decision because I'd spoken to one of my bosses um, and he basically said, right, this is what it is. Because he told us that. He says, if you want to leave, he says, join Royal Marines. He says, you're going to have to leave. Basically, that's it. You have to leave and then do PRMC, you know, and go down that route. Or there is obviously like, because we had discussed obviously diver because, I, you know, I'd love diving, love scuba diving, you know. And it was just basically something I love the water. I'm a natural water baby. I, I feel most calm and peace in water, especially diving. And I just found myself... I wanted to go down that route. So that was why I decided I want to go Royal Marines and then go for special boat service. And basically I got to a point, right, I've got to train for this. So I started training natural mile and a half, putting Bergens on, you know, increasing the weight just to get that stamina. Cause obviously I've spoken to, and you know him as well, Dean Stott and like me and Dean were chatting about this and he, and he said himself personally, it's the hardest course he's ever done. Really? For, you know, for Royal Navy diver. And he's passed, he's obviously done special force selection and, and I know that because obviously I've known other people who've done um, the courses as well. And it is, and a lot of people said it, it's one of the toughest courses you can do. So I had to not only mentally prepare for it, I had to physically prepare for it. So I was like, right, I put the Bergens on. And I remember one day I was out training for it. It's just on the, uh, on the base itself because I was down at Cold Rose at the time. Going around, I was coming to the end of my arm and a half. And then suddenly my right knee just gave out, completely gave out. And I went down and I was like, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't sound good. So I managed to get up and it was only a short distance to the medical bay anyway. So I managed to get over there. And before I had any x-rays, CAT scans, or anything done, I was speaking to a commander surgeon and he basically put his hand on my knee and he was like, move it, move this way, move that way. And he said, you've got floating bone in there, basically. You've broken something. Oh, okay. He knew it straight away just by feeling the knee. Yeah. And I was like, you're sure? Are you sure? And he's like, yeah, yeah. He says, but I can't be sure until I get obviously the x-rays and the CAT scans done. So I was like, fine. So obviously I had to like manage to like strap it all up and manage to thought, right, I'm going to put knock on the head for training for now because I was literally due to move back up to Scotland. So I managed, um, it was a couple of weeks I had to go and I managed to get a, um, obviously hospital appointments, Plymouth Hospital, and they gave us my x-rays. And I was like, I'll have a look, I, you know, interesting to see. So I'm not a doctor, but when I pulled them out and I looked at them, You've got like a trident shape in the in the knee, almost yeah. looks like. And this bit of it, the middle bit, tip, was completely snapped off. It was jagged. That had completely broke off. So I was like, no wonder that if that's what's broken, it, it was completely destroyed. And so I was waiting for the CAT scan. But now this is where the interesting part is. I then went on deployment up to Scotland and I was and I kept going back to the medical band. I said, so I'm waiting for my results to turn up because I obviously I'm can I get this fixed? I need to get this fixed because I'm obviously I want to um, try out for like divers um, and I want to go for that. And they basically turned around and went, they kept saying, oh, we haven't heard anything yet. We haven't heard anything. And I'm sort of, it's a bit strange. Just, I had a CAT scan a few weeks back. You know, surely we'd had results by now. It took me three months to get back on it. It was literally about me three months later, I found out and I walked in, I went, right, have you got them? Because I kept going back and forth and they turned around and said, it's torn ligaments. I says, no, it's not. And I knew that because I was getting a lot, a lot of pain from it. I couldn't walk on it properly. I couldn't bend bend my knees properly. Um, they were locking out. I couldn't even squat 
because it was literally the pressure on my knees. And I was like, and I said to him, I said, no, it's not. And he said, yes, it's just torn ligaments, you'll be fine. And I was thinking, something's not right here. And that's when I started noticing my mental health deteriorating. And that's when it was starting to get the panic attacks. So I was going to say, when you said um, deteriorating, what sort of feelings were you getting or how was it coming up? It was claustrophobia. It was almost because obviously I was living on board Ark Royal at the time and where they've uh, got obviously the mess decks, you've got like two sets of bunk beds essentially. So you've got a bottom bunk and it's about a metre between the bottom bunk and the top bunk, like on your, your head space. So you, you've got very small spaces and even down by the, where the bomb bay is, you have to go down a big, long, like deep ladder but essentially it's in a, like a metal cage. And every time you go down one level, you've got to like close this metal grid above your head. So you constantly like, it felt for a while, it felt weird. I was like, I don't feel right. Cause it was like, I was starting to get really panicky in small spaces and I thought I've never been like this. And it was like that really bad claustrophobia that was kicking in and I was starting to wake up in the middle of the night thinking, it doesn't feel right, it feels like, a, a, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And I can't, and I thought, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. You know what I mean? It's like, and I remember going on leave for the weekend and that was it. It was someone clicked in this and like, I can't go back. I cannot physically go back in that environment. And I was like, right, what can I do next? Then what's going to happen next? And basically they phoned us and they went, right, you're going to have to come to this. Some, someone called the captain's table. Essentially you stand in front of a captain and then you get all your discharge papers, everything like that. And I just felt like I couldn't get back in the environment. And they phoned us and went, right, you've got the captain's table on. I can't do it. I physically couldn't make that, that, that travel to there. It was someone just stopping us constantly. And I was like, I can't do this. I'm stressing out. And they went, right, you don't have to come then. But what we can tell you is you're going to lose all benefits and rights. So I was basically stripped of a pension. So basically, of all you, you were basically told that you had to face somebody which sounds like a pretty humiliating experience anyway um and you were going through this um awful anxiety panic attack um and and they wouldn't help you through no. basically i had i had a I had somebody phone us up saying one of the lads on board didn't really know him that well and he says oh you'll be fine mate with loads of people have like anxiety or loads of people have a bit of panic now and again but you'll be fine just come on just get back on board crack on i had a com had a commander phone us up and he says he, he threatened us to say get on back on board um at the time he says you will get back on board and i was like sir i'm not being disrespectful but they, i can't be back in that environment that's what's causing the problems and the, you know it wouldn't be so bad had it turned around and said right you've got to like obviously go to you know another naval base and you've got to like go there and we'll you know and that's where you've got to go you won't go back you won't go on board ship until we like obviously investigate this it, it was almost like you will go here because we've told you to this is where your orders are and you will do it and and yet if somebody had i think done something like that to me in in a different situation that's not let's say it wasn't the military, I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't look upon that organization in a very good manner. But I know, I know you're, you, you, um, you do a lot for veterans. You are yeah. very much involved in the community. You're very much a pioneer in, in mental health um, uh, and particularly around veterans. How has that made you feel towards the military? 
To be honest, I've got no hard feelings. I've got no hard feelings because I look at it as at the end of the day, you're just doing it. You're doing a job. You're getting paid a wage to do essentially a contract. You know, you sign a contract, you're going to do it. You get paid that job to do a contract. It's, it's essentially no different from what people are doing on the, we're doing on the circuit, you know, throughout like the Iraq and Afghan period, you know, essentially they're getting paid to do that job. That's it. You know, that's why I looked at it at that point. The only point, because you've got to remember in 2000, the government never officially recognized PTSD. It didn't exist. It wasn't even a term back then. Essentially, it wasn't until the lads start coming back from Iraq, Afghan, that they started actually saying, yeah, maybe there is a problem here. But they never, still never talked about it, never did nothing about it until you're talking past the invasion of Hellman's. So you're going way into the, you know, going into late 2010, going into those period of times that people started speaking out more. And really, like I said, even then, there was no, nothing called PTSD back then. So, so what at what stage you were diagnosed eight years later after you came out? Yeah. Um, and w- had you hit rock bottom at that stage? Or I was thing was that when I came out and they basically turned around and went to a doctor and they went right, you go on fluoxetine at first, um, and that was it, basically fluoxetine. And just, just so people know, that's that's an antidepressant, right? Yeah, yeah antidepressant. It's because you usually get two types of, uh, prescribed to you. You either get fluoxetine but that's quite old school now, or you got sertraline, which is the newer kind. Um, I did a good few years on, I was literally, all I was doing was going backwards towards the doctor, speaking to him, how are you feeling? Well, not any better. And because I was still getting panic attacks, I was still getting anxiety, I was still getting blackouts, I was still, you know, everything, you know, I was still getting flashbacks. I was still, I was waking up in the middle of the night, standing in front of windows when thunderstorms were going on, I can't even remember it. And I'd we, have arguments and fights with sleep. Did they not sort of, say that counseling or chatting or talking to somebody or uh, some alternative ways rather than chucking loads of hard meds down your throat which is essentially a load of rubbish really especially without they gave us cbt they turned around and went go to cbt so i went to cbt and they basically turned around went there's some coloring books color them in i went well (laughs) how's that meant to do anything you know, it can that work for it. some people. It can work for some people. Painting. It can. But the problem is, so as I was going through, obviously, counselling, I was going, that's all I was basically doing, CBT. And I was like, this isn't working. What's I spent to do for me? They were giving it, I was on, obviously, medication. I went on propanol as well for my heart, because um, obviously my heart was racing half the time. But what it was, was I was comfortably numb. I was spaced. I was like, my head was in the clouds constantly. It was to basically slow my brain down. It was space. It was like just to numb us out as a zombies. I mean, I've, I've only been on Valium once and, and that was yeah. back pain. Um, yeah. and I was wrongly diagnosed. I wanted to come off it straight away. Everyone else was going, wow, you're on Valium. I was like, I hate it. It's horrible. Obviously like a zombie. Yeah. I wanted to come straight. I came, I actually brought myself and that was for back pain. It wasn't anything. I was mis- misdiagnosed, but yeah, to be on it for years, I just, you know, do, you're not yourself, right? It's, it's like, it's weird because it's like, what it was, was I was taking Propanolol and I didn't realize at the time I was taking them. And I remember walking up the stairs one day and I remember like, I just completely blacked out and I was like, this is weird. So I stepped back for some, I, for some reason I stepped back, I was at the top of the stairs. So I basically done 
my legs just went over the top of my head. I went rolling down the stairs. I've done that. I fell into baths. I basically took all the skin off my arm oh, because like I was, I was like, I was trying to make a cup of coffee and I, and literally, and I must've had my finger just on the on button and it just boiled and boiled and boiled and the kettle exploded. And I literally just took all the skin off my arm. And it was like, I can't even remember half this stuff. I was like, I was like a zombie. I was just completely spaced out. Why do the medical profession to subscribe these? You know, look, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not here to criticize, yeah. but, I, but I have to say, you know, I hear it time and time again that the first thing people do um, with mental health issues is here, take, take these drugs, take these, you're fine in the morning sort of thing. Well, I, that, that is, well, I don't think that's the answer to physical problems or mental problems, actually. I, I, I don't think take, I think taking drugs like that doesn't necessarily help. It just relieves the symptom rather than actually looking at the root cause. Absolutely, because essentially what it is, they, they'll give you medication. And the reason why it's an easy option, that is it. It's, yeah. it's a cheap, easy option because you got to think about it, especially if you're talking, because now we've, we've come to be a little bit more educated. The PTSD and the way I look at it is that post, when you break it down, essentially your post traumatic stress disorder and mm -hmm. I look at his post so that's something after something's happening and that, that doesn't say what but it's any kind of trauma so you can go car accidents rape physical violence domestic violence domestic violence is one of the biggest crimes in the world mm -hmm. you got to think about this you've got all these different traumas to so anybody who's been like it's after a after a traumatic experience then you've got the stress part yes of course there's going to be stress in the mind and the body you've got a trauma you know when you break it down, this PTSD, it's basically after trauma, you know, stress, and it's, they call it a disorder, but I think that's, you know, it's an injury. It's essentially an injury to the, to the mind, to the body. Yeah. It is that injury. You know, when you've got things like TBIs, like traumatic blast injuries, they're all injury-based, yeah. essentially. Um, and how did, you, um, how did you get down to the root? Did you get down to the root cause of it was actually around 2010 because what it was was I kept going back to dogs, kept giving them more medication. I was kept, and I was like, "This isn't working." You'd expect after a good two, three years, and the problem isn't identified or even fixed, or there is a a, a route to be fixing somebody. You would think that like they would look at it further. They didn't. It was like literally, "There's your tablets. Get on it," you know. And it was until what it was was I went to, I went to doctors, and he started chatting. It's a new doctor, and most doctors now are locums. And he and we got chatting, and he and he says, "I've been looking at your records, and it's your former military." And I was like, "Yeah," and like he asked us obviously about a few things and uh, like home life and that. And I was in a relationship at the time, and I explained a few things, and he was like, "Right, okay." Start listening. He went, "I believe you've got PTSD." I went, "Nah, I haven't got PTSD." I says, "That I was never front line." Now this is the biggest part. Most people think that PTSD is only for frontline soldiers. And I've just explained that it's not. It's for many different types of trauma. Essentially, it is a traumatic experience. You know, I mean, firefighters don't know why they're not given the support of that. You know, they, that's more traumatic than, you know, than a lot of things. Or, you know, any of the, the emergency services, you know, police, you know, the fire brigade, ambulance, the things they see and do. It's like that is a traumatic experience half the time. Absolutely. Absolutely, because I think what is well, when people think of it as in like traumatic experiences, 
is especially like military culture was a drinking culture it's only really changed it's it changed probably in the last 10 years um and there's some great people out there doing things like james elliott doing mental resilience got mike chadwick um you know they are looking at all these different things now which is the great part of it you are looking at all these let's look at the science behind it because essentially a human you put a human into a traumatic experience it's fight or flight it was know it but what it is is we're not educated enough that's the problem is not enough real education out there and that's what it is so that basically it's it's crazy right yeah. <laughs> it is. you'll you'll do fine we won't talk about what you went through take some beats yeah. away so okay so they so so you don't so it wasn't the military um that that, that you that for your own trauma no no um and how did you go to the next stage and did you heal yourself? Did this doctor, um, do, when he realized that it was um, post-traumatic stress, did he refer you or do anything else? Or? He did. He did. And that was the game changer. That was it. What it was, was obviously I'd been through counseling services and things like that. did nothing for us. I, I went, what it was, is I went to see, a, it was actually a psychiatrist, NHS psychiatrist, and she broke it down. She didn't have to. It wasn't, obviously, but she, and she said to me i've done a bit of research and she, and i was like okay and she explained every step of this trauma and this is what it this is how you potentially get it you know how you develop it should you say then this is how what it does to you this is how you feel and i was ticking all these boxes off and i was like that's me that's me that's me that's me and i was like the flashbacks this that everything else it was like and and i'd already gone through a lot of like obviously trauma-based as well in relationship there was a lot of trauma attached to that um it was basically between me and her she basically broke it down and we're like wow because she even said to me the other part of it is because i'm highly analytic i'm very highly analytical apparently and, and most people think what's highly analytical and i was i kind of i was explaining this think of a piece of music most people say you know i love the sound of that music my brain's automatically going how do you work that out how do you play that? I mean, I could literally break down helicopters down the last night and bolt motorbikes, cars, computers. Give me something. I look at everything as a big Lego kit. I will break everything down to the smallest component until I've worked it out. So the one thing you My brain is relationships, right? Is that where it's sort of... Yeah, it was basically that was, that was the other part. That was the mix of it. The, the, a lot of people, and I was getting put out there more, a lot of people, when they think of, like, say, mentally abusive relationships, they think of it as, like, male-female or yeah. female-male. Yeah. They don't see being in environment. Now, a lot of people might not pick up on this, but it's when that person you're with, if you're a male, for example, we know of domestic violence. We know of violence against women. We know of mental, you know, abuse, the, the way, you know, percentage of men go on but then people they don't look at that aspect the way women are now when you're in a, a situation where you're basically boxed in and your body is in fight fight mode 24 7 i would it was like i went through so much hyper vigilance it was unreal it was like i was walking down streets i was looking in, in in reflections i was making analytical decisions there and then 
like you know i mean looking at exfil sites infill sites i was looking thinking right this 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 like i said walking down the street all constantly looking reflections in in windows my i was literally like spidey sense think of it as being or i was waiting for the next fight to happen i was waiting for the next argument to happen i was waiting for all this to happen my body was running on adrenaline that was essentially it it was like were you did you were you told this about your relationship or did you sort of come to that like realization and think oh my god i'm in an i'm in an abusive relationship and like you say for a man to talk about it 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 must it you know it's it's difficult for me to say because um obviously i'm not a man but you to be able to talk about it is there um a resistance there or a feeling like it's the ego it's it's a male ego ego. basically yeah, it's a male ego because men are designed to be, I'm tough, I'm strong, yeah. I'm this. That's the same as any trauma-based. Men are e- is, is built on ego. And this is where the problem, at the end of the day, you as a, like, as a man, you do not need to feel you have to put up this front. You know, and this is where, at the end of the day, people have got to realize, regardless of sex, we've all got emotion. Absolutely. And that's the, that, that is the basis of human behavior and human, you know, genetics, human DNA. We are going to get upset about something. We're going to get angry about something. And that was another part of it as well. I know myself. And that's when, obviously, I was like this. I was almost like this. I call it the, uh, the um, pressure cooker. I call it like, it's, it's like a pressure cooker. Think of that. You put all, keep putting all that trauma into a pressure cooker. Same as you put ingredients. You shut the lid. And then you put on that heat. The more that's boiling, the more that's all that you know, that ingredients is putting in there. The more, and you've got to have that release valve. Mm-hmm. And I was getting to a point where I was getting more and more angry inside, and I was like, it was like I was, and for me, I it was years late, a good few years later that I looked at it as controlled violence, because essentially when you're in the military and like men, on a whole, were natural born fighters. That's it. If you go back to like, you know, Nathaniel times, you go yeah. back to caveman times, we're, we're natural fighters. You know, if a fight's there, we'll, we'll fight. That's it. You know, and I think what it is, is this whole DNA, we're designed to be strong. We're designed to be tough. We're not supposed to show any emotion. And that's very much instilled in the military. And you can understand why there's an aspect in the military. You've got to basically switch off from any other emotion when you're yeah. going to go and take another person's life. Mm. That's it. You've got to make decisions that are you going to fight or are you going to, you know, are you going to flight basically? And that can be put into any scenario. But on that one, that's when you, you that you're up the ante, essentially, because you've just constantly made a decision that, because I, the way I looked at it, it's being team lead and I had my team in front of me. Those guys are going to go home safe. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess that's, that, it. that's your job as um, team leader. Yeah. How do you um, translate that into then, um, you know, putting in yourself in this scenario of um, being in a relationship or being back, you know, in civilian life and, and having this mental trauma, but not being able to act on it? Because you can't obviously just shoot your mother half. You might want to. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. repercussions behind that. So is that when you're, then it sort of builds up in this pressure. Yeah. It's that pressure cooker, like I say, you can't physically do anything. And when you're, it's getting to the point where there's arguments upon arguments upon arguments and you're waiting for that next fight, 
and you're thinking, right, and you've got to take that, that calm. I'm very naturally a calm person, but when you put into scenarios where you literally, you're, you want to do, you know, you, you, if it was a, a man on man argument, yes. you know, that's, you know, it's a different situation, but when it's a man against a woman, you're kind of like, you're pushing my limits now. And no matter what you're physically, you, you, you're saying it to the person and it's like, right, so you've just got to kind of, and you're keeping all this inside you and you've just got to constantly keep backing down. Cause it's like, um, that's it. That's what you live in. You live in that scenario where you just want to, and I can understand people will go out there and it's like, they need that breather. They need to take that back step, you know? And it's like, you're in that situation yet. And you want to act, you want to say something. And you think, well, if I say something, that's more fuel on the fire. Do you think, and, and it, sorry, yeah. well, I was, do you think there's, um, cause it, you know, we're now in this situation of, of, of a lockdown. Um, and you know, it's, it, there's a lot of pressure on, on relationships anyway, because, yeah. you know, men and women or, or I'm not just going to say men and women could be men and men, yeah. whatever Yeah, yeah. That we're, that we're in this, you know, unless you're living on your own, be confined to a space which isn't that we we're not naturally meant to be together 24 7 no. I think that's natural don't you think there's going to be a lot more pressure for relationships to i mean we've already heard divorce rates are up we've, we've heard domestic no. violence is on the up what what would you suggest for um well for men let's put it this way men that are that are feeling this way they're they're at home and you know i'm not being sexist at all here but i'm just putting the scenario over they're at home they're, they're with their wife or their girlfriend and they're feeling this frustration what, what i would say the greatest thing i ever found was exercise that was it it was a it was a leveler for me and obviously i'm part of another obviously another gym uh, gym self-harmers club and they, most people hear when they hear that they say self-harm it's like no you've what it is is you're you're mentally destroying your body physically help yourself that's it uh, i absolutely i actually i love that because um I'm, i lift weights and obviously you you have to destroy your muscle to rebuild it yeah uh, and you know i'm a big weight lifter that, that, that's why i used to do physique competitions i love it so i i quite like that um that analogy yeah that's uh gym self-harmers i like that yeah because it's it's like obviously it's like obviously rob because who runs it i had rob on the podcast and me and her good, very good friends. We've done, obviously we've done a 30 mile uh, for the free peaks not long back to raise money for mental health charities and that. But like, really it's like something that I can actually, when obviously when I got involved with gym self-harmers, but be, even before this, I knew the physical exercise was my go-to. It was that point where you've got to physically let this out. You've got to have that, pr that pressure cooker. You've got that, that release valve. And when you're doing that, you've got to really find a way it's just, the most positive way to release stress. And that is, you know, either chucking weights around, lifting weights, physically pushing yourself to a limit, like physically. And I would say anybody in that situation, you can, you can do so much at home, you know? There's so much you can do. You can adapt, you can overcome. And like, even if it's like, you can go online and find sand weights you know you can use sand for weights you can use concrete for weights you can you know you can use anything around yourself and it's about adapt and overcome and it's about finding those things and even if it is just to do an exercise even boxing you know or i mean i used to do obviously a lot of kickboxing 
even boxing and you can find so many different things to release that tension inside yourself because it's essentially the part that where mental health happens when you're locked in an environment and we are tribal as people we're very much attuned to tribes we must be in tribes essentially we naturally go that way but what it is is when you're locked into a one-on-one -on -one situation whatever sex you are you're gonna there's gonna be pressure there Oh, you know, there's going to be flares and ten, you know, tension. There, there naturally is. There's other things that you do do as well, though, Chris. You're a great writer, and you've got to tell me how many books have you written? Because it's not just one. Well, is it six, six, seven books now? Wow. Sometimes I forget because I, I just write for writing's sake. I go and because it, that was another part of therapy. That was my therapy. Because see, what it was was like when I found out, like obviously all. the I got the answer essentially to the problem that I had. And, and I do believe that I was, I've been misdiagnosed of being ADHD and autism for most of my life, you well, know, because I'm about three, I think I'm three points, three points off high of autistics off the spectrum. Okay. Yeah. And then basically like a wild kid that basically had ADHD. And you've never been diagnosed as such. I was put down as crazy. Oh yeah, I was crazy. I think a lot of kids now are now sort of now they know, don't they, that it's ADHD. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we were, we were all grow crazy when we were younger. But it, it it was literally I was basically put down as you're crazy, and that was from the people that I grew up around. Yeah, basically you're crazy, and that's it. It didn't. It was like it was kind of because you got to remember obviously growing up in the eighties, it was like that none of this, none of this, what we see now ever happened. You know, and kids, yes, get hyperactive kids. I was wild. I was like, you know, so much energy there was like this, just, and, and I didn't realize I'm very, and I'm quite like introvert as well on a lot of scales. I like talking to people and to do this, this took a lot because I mean, a good few years, like two years back, you know, I wouldn't done this. I did, like I said, it, it took a lot to even do the podcast. That's amazing. And to me, to me, it's because, pardon? The podcast is amazing as well. You do it. We'll do a shout out to your podcast as well. Because it Thank you. really is, Chris. I mean, that's how I found out about you. Obviously, we've yeah. got a lot of people that we know um, in the veteran community, but um, your podcast kept popping up and it's, it's yeah, amazing. Love it. No, I appreciate that. But I would say there's so many underlying factors. When you've got so many different elements into a mix, so when I kind of started breaking this down, and this is through like obviously working alongside a psychiatrist, and that's when I started, it was a make or break in my head. And I was like, right, now I'm seeing the pattern. It's starting to understand it. When you've actually got the right person that will work with you and break down your like the issues that you're facing, because this is the biggest problem in mental health that I've found. When you do, because I've done mental health courses, I've done like obviously level uh, like a level one introduction course, done a level two on mental health. And I found that all bases of mental health is essentially anxiety and depression. That's what your foundation of mental health is, those two elements. You can throw the mix in, you can throw in bipolar, you know, PTSD, you can throw in all these different parts. But essentially what it is, is they are the foundations of any mental health. But also myself, I find that the biggest foundation is frustration. It's being put into situations that you haven't got control of. Yeah, you're not in control. That's it. That is your basis of all mental health. Because when you physically look at it, you've got to have a, you know, a mediocre control of everything, haven't you? 
Did you do you put writing and your training, your working out as um, how you got through those dark days? Because you, I, I would say so. You're, you're off yeah. the mess now, right? You must. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was that point where did you go to cold turkey, or did they sort of? Re- I did. I went cold turkey. I went through three months of hell. Because what it was, was I didn't, obviously, when I made the make or break decision, I had to, I wanted to, to make up, I I had to break this cycle. I was like, I'm unwell. I've got a mental health issue. I've got this, you know, this illness, essentially. I want to find out, I'm going to fix myself. I will do whatever it takes to fix myself and get better. And then to be honest, what I know now was nothing compared to what I knew then. It was just this burning desire. I needed to change. I needed to get help. I needed to fix myself. And it was like, I started writing things down, scribbling things down. Like, and I started, and that's how the first book came around actually. And I was like, put this in and, put, and it started building and building and building. You remember the old, the Blackberries? Yes. Blackberry phones. Very, oh, yeah, Blackberry, uh, Blackberry I, <laughs> I had one, I had one in them and, and, and I had a real problem with, concentrating on things i couldn't concentrate on anything and it was like oh, i just couldn't and it was just something i thought i'm gonna push myself and i'll start just writing a few things down just like little sentences almost and i was really bad at writing i found that i had to literally teach myself to read and write again i was I, I, before all this i was a speed reader i could just polish through books like war and peace in five days you know things like that i could just fire through them and, and and I got to the point where I just couldn't even read something. I was like, I just get bored, I switch off. And I think, oh, right. And then I, I just saw this blackberry and I was like, right, if I just write down a few sentences each day and it just built and built and built and built. And I just, I like this because I switched off from everything. It was like this little zone I was in. Mm. And I was like, I like this. And then it was just more and more and more. And I said, that's how the first book came around because it was like, I took a small area of my life and I started writing this book. And then it was just in my brain, I was starting to, put things into order again I was like right I want to do this I want to do that I want to do this I want to do that and and, and I knew I had to make that massive leap of faith almost you know and I was still taking the medications I was still on that and I was like but it's not going to let me control my life I'm going to take control so what what do you think was the final if you like savior that took you off the meds and it was basically, I got to a point where I was sick of being comfortably numb. I was walking around like a zombie half the time. I was just like, half the time I was just like, yeah, right. And I was like, no. And it was, what it was, was obviously, I, when obviously the relationship broke, mm. clean break, bang, done, finished. And it was, I'd made that decision. I was like, right. And then when obviously I told a person two weeks before, I, even, I took that step forward. And they were like, no, it ain't, it ain't happening. I was like, yes, it is. It's over. I'm done with. I'd made that decision. I was like, no, that's it. I'm taking control back mm. of my life. I'm not going to be, I mean, I've been homeless. I've, you know, I've been through the ringer, everything. And I was like, right, I'm going to take control back of my life. This is where I, that I call the shots on my life, what I do. And it basically, I made that decision. It's make or break. So I made that decision and then I broke it. And what it was, was I had a lot of anger. A lot of anger inside. It's angry, and I'm not an angry person. And the thing was, I was wait. I was literally. I was like, I just wanted. Like, I was getting really stressed, and I was saying, I don't know why I'm doing this for. And then it was. It was just building and building and building. It was like this volcano, and I literally had to work out. I was getting up at like four o'clock in the morning. 
I was doing like 500 sit-ups, 500 press-ups. I was doing boxing. I was doing weights. I was doing everything I could physically drain myself where I couldn't do anymore. I was literally like just pushing my physical limit. And that's where I identify now as the self-harmers, you know, part of it. Because I was physically destroying my body to mentally put me in that place where I was at peace. I was like at war with myself. I was like, I wanted to. So it was, what, I, I, what was yeah. the anger? Can you describe what the anger was like? It, it was going through everything that happened in the relationship, the betrayals, the everything. It was everything. I had this, because it was almost like this fuse had been lit in us. I, would, I just literally wanted to, it was like, I want to explode. And it was like, it, with me, I, I basically hit that self-destructive button, this big red destructive button and pressed it. And I was like, I lost that part of like, it was like, if you want to do something, that mission, you just got to put yourself in a mission. So what it was is actually, I came back at that military mindset. That's how I kind of got myself on that path. And it was like, right, I've got a mission to do. I've got my mission statement. I've got me, you know, why, what, and how. And it was like putting that into place. And I literally used that from the military, that military mindset to push myself forward. I would, like I said, I would get up at four o'clock in the morning and exercise. I'd exercise like three times in a day, half a time. And I just want to keep pushing myself physically. And it was that point where I was right. And I actually, I was, I brought the point, who as a person because i thought i want to get back into work that actually most people who have been put on sickness benefits or put in sick to me it was like i hated being off work i just wanted to return back to something i had to have a purpose mm -hmm. i had to find that purpose again that was another thing i can only identify with that when people say i lose that purpose because you have that mission you have that that life you live in and it was like i wanted that purpose have you found your purpose now yeah yeah found my purpose and that is writing it's helping other people it's and it's literally doing everything to help others and if you look back and you see how that your your relationship the bad relationship actually benefited you now yeah i, I, I usually say you always get a positive out of a negative and and i always say that I, I always look for that in anything in life you'll always go through anything negative but there's always positive in that negative it you know yeah absolutely well, completely agree um chris listen it's been fantastic chatting to you where can people find out about more because I'm, I'm going to put all of this obviously in the show yeah now. yeah um and you well, were predominantly yeah go on yeah because i was going to say predominantly i'm on instagram so it's, it's now changed to dark side podcast so i look at it as a that's my main site yes it does obviously in a link with facebook um, all my books are on Amazon, just put in Chris Michaels, all the books are on there. If I even go through the easier way of doing it as well, is on my Instagram, there's a, a bio. Um, once you go in there, there's a link, it's like a tree, uh, the link tree. Really? And you can go on there, it's about, and it takes you all to the, um, the, if the podcasts are all on iTunes, Spotify, um, so I upload all of them on that. But really to me, I've wrote the books and I'm glad I've done it. But to me, it's like more like I want to go down to help other people with writing, with business. You know, I'm, I'm going to take what I've done in writing and help people build their business, essentially, because I've just created a new creative writing business, Think Creation. Um, so that's on Instagram as well. So I've got that. Um, I've also done another um, Instagram account. It's called Bre um, Breaking the Stigma, because I basically I'm going to get other people and I want to create a world community of other people's work. So if I see something, I think, right, put it on there. I want to get everybody connected. So I want to build like platforms. Sounds amazing. Um, I have got one last question. It is my yeah, yeah, sure. one last question. And that is if you were to write a message in the bottle, the yeah. 
future generations to find, what would that message be? That's always a tough one because I always usually ask people that what's the one piece of advice, but it's, I would say, be kind. Chris, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Um, More than welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having us on. Nice meet you when I'm back up north. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Bye, Chris. Take care. Bye. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like, and you'll get it straight into your inbox.